So today I thought that uh, I wanted to talk about our practice. Funny, that. <laughs> In particular, I wanted to get a little bit from you about what you, what notions people have about what practice is. Not just notions, but um, activities or modes of being or states of mind, or specific concrete actions. What is practice? So I wanted to have this, uh, basically the talk is kind of uh, for those who need a title for this talk. <laughs> uh, I'm not really sure but what is practice, maybe? Or um, maybe something more specific. What does practice ask of me? What does my practice ask of me? Or what does your practice ask of you? So people come to a place like this, a Zen Center, for all kinds of reasons. All kinds of reasons at different times, too. People sometimes come to a Zen Center out of curiosity, and then they, uh, you know, maybe something in their lives is challenging them in a particular way like looking for a fresh perspective, so they come into a uh, Zen center, or a Buddhist center, for an alternative perspective, maybe, from uh, the usual cultural expectations, or understandings, or ways of thinking about how to live, maybe. Our general overarching culture is definitely very different in a lot of ways, in terms of what it upholds as being uh, worthy of value, right, than maybe a Zen center would. So there's a little bit of a departure from cultural norms when coming into a Zen center, yeah. And then so some people come, you know, when you think about coming to a Zen center, what do you come to the Zen center for? So just kind of playing around with this question of what is practice? Like what do people come to Zen centers for? Is one way to kind of dig a little bit, to kind of peek underneath. So I thought, what do people come to Zen centers for? I was thinking about the Zendo while I was sitting this morning as a, I was sitting next to somebody who is a, um, uh, who practices jujitsu, I believe. And uh, so I thought about this place as a dojo. It's kind of like a dojo, right? We come in to the Zendo as a training hall, right? We put ourselves down. We, we have a particular form of entering and sitting down. So we like, there's some, I don't know if any, how many people here have ever taken up a martial art, but there's forms, a lot of forms, kata, right? It's structure of like training. And so that's definitely here, right? The zendo as a dojo. So there's a taking up a bodily and mental attitude for practicing. What is that? Okay, so I'm going to leave that for a second. What is the practice there? Okay, we'll, we'll come back to it. But so some people come to a Zen center for the dojo aspect, the training. It's a training hall. You come in and like, <laughs> <laughs> training. 
or maybe not. Maybe some people come to a Zen center because they're looking for, um, like I said earlier, something that's uh, outside of the main kind of culture that in our case, where we live, uh, I mean like in this day and age, <laughs> is pretty hyper-capitalistic, right? In terms of worth, what's, what's of value? So a lot of times people come to a place like this or any spiritual place, actually, place of, uh, place of worship, place of practice, place of uh, refuge, place of connection. So these are other reasons maybe that people might come to a Zen center, right? For refuge from the crazy, crazy world. A place to be silent. A place to um, open one's heart to stillness. The, the smells of the incense, which if you're you know, allergic to, would be an awful thing, but oftentimes people really like the smells of incense, or the sounds of bells. Right? We, we try very hard to have the place be uh, kind of inviting in this calming way. <laughs> right. um, so maybe coming, coming to a Zen center for peace, for refuge. And then people also come for uh, community, to be connected to other people, to not feel so separate, to connect on deeper levels of like, what's really meaningful to me? What's important in my life and in this other person's life? Because when we actually look anywhere below the surface, we find that we're all concerned about the same things, really, underneath all the surface. So connection, they come for connection. And then people also can come to a Zen center uh, as a place of worship. And then the question is, what is it that is, of, is being worshiped? Anybody have a sense of that? The worship aspect? I'm like getting some like no's. No, I do. You do? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what is the what is it that's worshipped for you? Uh, some of it is worshiping what's beyond understanding, what's beyond my mind. There's something that holds all of this. And it's a place to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I guess on a more mundane level somewhat, it's to say what the Buddha experienced and, and what that continued on in that lineage is, is valuable and worthy of veneration and preservation, and that's part of it too. Yeah, so finding worth, finding the value in something that's maybe even beyond our understanding. That's what I got from Zen. So worship of the 
the unknown and our relationship to it being very kind of fragile, vulnerable. Yeah, there's a tentativeness to it, I suppose. Uh-huh. But there's also kind of an inevitability. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and then, yeah, worship is an interesting word because um, I'm not sure the root of it, worship is, but I think it's, it's a, uh, it can be a very scary word for people because it can sometimes mean, uh, putting oneself down in favor of like exalting something else. Right. I think some of us need to be not mama peg to <laughs> <laughs> speak for myself. I know I have to do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bruce, yeah. Yeah, well, I was just thinking that could be a Dharma talk in and of itself, of worship and, and, yes, it and what it is. I, I think, I mean, I agree with what Eric said, and I, I would maybe elaborate a bit and say I think it's, it's more about honoring and embracing, not analyzing, which some of us are more prone to do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this mystery, you know, so it's about meeting it and, yeah. and honoring it. And I'm reminded of a, story Kosha would tell from time to time where someone, you know, how during the morning and regular morning and evening programs we bow on exiting the zendo. Yeah. So the, the priest of the doshi and you bow to the person and someone was expressing some kind of resistance uh-huh. to that. It's like, why do I have to bow to the man to get out of the zendo? <laughs> <laughs> and Kosha's response was, oh, I thought I was bowing to you. <laughs> Lovely. Yes. So, a kind of simple analogy that I heard from someone one of the first times I I became exposed to the ideas of Buddhism, uh, the analogy was um, the bumper cars at the carnival are all the the way they move around is they're they're connected to it. The ceiling is electrified, and so universal consciousness is like that. It's like the ceiling, and so when when our little bumper car connects to that that ceiling, then we can move around in the bumper cars that, for whatever reason, lose their connection to that electrified ceiling, can't move around, and so. Can't smash into the So it's it's yeah right right yeah so the you know so the. That's the analogy that stuck with me. Huh. As silly yeah. as it is. No, I like it. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I was just going to say um, that for some of us, the, the notion of worship is a bit of um, an offensive concept in some ways due to conditioning you know, or experience, right? And yet, um, there's certainly a vital devotional aspect to, to practice, right? Like finding that which is worthy of, of veneration or um, acknowledging what I think the, the potential, at least for nobility within, within us, within each of us is. Um, and uh, I, I do agree with, with what Eric said about needing to be brought down a peg or two often. Um, but I think it goes the other way too. I think that we need to be lifted up often because um, in my experience, self-aggrandizement and self-beratement uh, are often two sides of the same coin. Yes. Yes. So 
So you're right, we could go on a whole worship tangent. <laughs> but I want to get back to this, um, this question about um, what practice is. So in all of these things, right, the practice of connection, the practice of veneration of things that are worthy of veneration, the practice of meditation, of using this space as a training uh, hall, a, a dojo, for mental and physical uh, awareness and subtleness. Right? We don't come here to get worked up. Maybe we do sometimes. <laughs> yeah, actually. Let me take that back. Sometimes we do. <laughs> to be incited, right? But ideally, in Buddhism, you know, we just chanted the loving-kindness meditation um, this morning. And uh, there's a lot in there about happiness, right? And may all beings be happy. And oftentimes people have a mm, kind of, eh, I'm not so interested in happiness. I'm interested in truth and, <laughs> and you know, principle and reason, right? But happiness um, in Buddhism is... Yeah, it's kind of a, it's an interesting word, happiness. It's like, is happiness the end of suffering? Is it a general okayness? Is it a joyfulness, bliss? Right. There are two Sanskrit terms, uh, sukha and piti, joy and bliss. Now, are we looking for bliss states? When you were talking a little while ago, I was thinking of happy in Buddhism maybe is like joyful harmony. <coughs> joyful harmony, happiness, to be happy. Yes, sure. So, you know, building on this dojo concept, right, because that's actually been on my mind a lot, that initially the bliss is like finding awareness without action which is, you need to open a gate to, but once you get to through that, you, you, that becomes a gate to awareness in action, with action. Nice. And the, I feel like I'm balancing practice or the, the, the martial arts of getting to the bliss and then getting to the ability to tie it together with action, which is harder, it takes more practice. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I worry about my own tendency sometimes to really get in bliss and want to stay there, you know, as, as an end in itself. And it, I don't think it's, sh you know, the grasping, the gaining idea, letting go of that, realizing that's just part of it. Right. Um, the bliss, so, so not lingering in. Not, yeah. An outcome of bliss. Point, not just trying to recreate that. Right. It's the bliss is part of a process that allows you to open to something greater than yourself, so that you can go beyond your ego and nurse your ego through being uh -huh. in this non-dual place. To nurse your ego to beyond a dual place. And so you kind of, yeah. you're having a non-dual experience of yourself within the larger consciousness mm. so that you can 
get beyond all this crazy constricted way in which we get stuck, even getting stuck in bliss. Yeah, yeah, even getting stuck in bliss. So sometimes people come to a place like a, a Zen center and they, they come for peace, right? And maybe bliss, but peace for sure, like definitely peace. Um, and I, met, I mentioned before uh, the talk about the compassion retreat, the upcoming compassion retreat, I said that it's not going to necessarily be easy. The peace part, it's like, where does peace come from? And what if you, like somebody asked me the other day, they said that um, they felt like they had an imposter syndrome um, in terms of their practice, that they were kind of looking peaceful or happy or okay, but like like how much of it is fake it till you make it? Right? This is the kind of the question in terms of practice. Like how much of it do we um, you know how much do we honor like what's happening in, inside us, whether it's peaceful or not, versus like finding peace or emphasizing the peaceful part right, of where we are, or maybe we're not there, but we feel we should be, because damn it, we're in a Zen center, <laughs> there should be peaceful here, right, so we put on the, uh, the, the facade, maybe, maybe we put on a facade of peacefulness, um, and maybe putting on the facade of peacefulness actually helps us find peacefulness, right? maybe, like um, Thich Nhat Hanh's smile, this practice of smiling, Y'all know this, right? Like just, you know, when you're feeling down, go to the mirror and smile at yourself and, and see what happens. I mean, you might have to go through some, like, you know, anger <laughs> or grimacing, right? But then, you know, to play with that. Oh, uh, yeah, when you talk about bliss. So I came here good recovery. So I have an addictive behavior. So for me, bliss is a pretty frightening thought. You know, I could get attached to that. So I now think, for me, bliss is, uh, it's like a bonus, right? So if I'm washing the dishes, the, the intention is to wash the dishes and I can relax and washing the dishes. If while I'm doing that, my wife can come and give me a kiss and a hug, thanking me for washing the dishes, that's the bliss moment. That's the, the reward for just being there and just doing what's in front of me. Mm -hmm. It's kind of my experience. Yeah. Because if I make it much more than that, I could really get trapped. You can get trapped. It's so easy. It's so easy to get to, to fall, right? To one side. I, I feel like it's also uh, bliss is very coarse. It's a very coarse term for various kinds of bliss states, right? There's there's bliss in the um, you know sort of dopaminergic you know, sort of sense <laughs> of, of bliss, right? And then there's also pleasure. Pleasure, 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 bliss, right? Or, or um, intentionally seeking, like I'm coming to a Zen center for meditation periods so that I can mm -hmm. peace out because I'm really stressed right now or, right. or whatever, right? And it's sought after as a goal. And then I think that there's this sort of formless. I almost hesitate to call it bliss, but it's much closer to to what Chu is saying around a sort of um, something that arises on its own amidst active non-doing. Or what Kent just said about the dishes. Yeah, yeah, it comes to. Yeah. Uh, Kathy, 
Oh, I have his greeting card at home. I picked up in a store and it says, it's quoting the Dalai Lama as saying, the purpose of life is to be happy. And coming from a background of being raised to be very self-critical and not show much compassion to myself and always blaming myself, it's just real helpful. Mm. And then somebody told me, a, I wish I could remember it correctly, a, a, a quote about, that they had heard from a teacher about, just, just forget about yourself. <laughs> you know, just, just, I think That's a good sometimes. one. <laughs> just forget about yourself. Yeah, when you're in a hyper-focused manner of other things. Well, I mean, I just like the way, that for me, that was very helpful. Because of the self, I think, being the ego. And, mm. Or do you just get caught up in, especially if you're self-critical, just get caught up in yourself. Yeah, and so, that, it serves the function of being, I think Eric's being taken down a peg, right? It's like, that may be a little bit stronger, but it's actually like, just forget about yourself. Yeah. It's I kind guess, of like, yeah, um, going in the same direction. And I think what you said about being in the moment, I mean, that's to me what I, I I'm not running a whole as much these days, I'd like to get back to it more, but um, I think every moment, if I'm working in the garden, if I'm washing the dishes, if I'm doing everything, is like, I guess my goal is to just be more aware instead of just going through life half mm. awake, just to be more aware of what happens in every moment. Yeah. And that's a, that's a practice that you can do anywhere, anytime. Yes. Um, well, I had a couple thoughts. One was I was just listening to a podcast yesterday where someone was talking about, he, he, he had this list, it was six or seven different distinctions between pleasure and happiness. And, and one that kind of stuck and came up in the context of this conversation was that pleasure is, pleasure says or thinks, this is really stimulating, I want more yeah. of it. Whereas yeah. happiness is more like this is really gratifying, I don't want or need. And You're already, yeah, you've got what you need. And I think that's related to the other thought that I had, which is we're talking about why people come here, why practice, and there's all these goals and all this seeking. And I think seeking is core to it. Like something's missing or something doesn't feel right. It gets it gets people in the door. Absolutely. I mean, it's I, I, I what I'm saying is I don't want to dismiss or downplay the role of that. Yet for me, when I've explained why I do this to other people who don't have this practice, I sometimes talk about it as just showing up. Showing up to meet whatever is there. Mm -hmm. And then stuff comes from that. But I'm not necessarily focused on the outcome or the right. specifics right. as much as, uh, and you know, this is making a thing of it anyway, but I, I think that for me it's about just kind of aspiring to some some state of affairs where I'm just like, okay, what is going on? I've got a front row seat to what is and what's going on, and now what? <laughs> or just kind of, because I think for me that's where the practice is. It's not so much uh, thinking ahead of time. If I do this, this will come. It's just more like I have some degree of hate to say faith, but maybe that's it, uh, confidence or, or just hope that 
if I do this, that is a good trust. Yeah, I like that. That that um, that that's a good way to orient myself to whatever. Mm, mm, that's a lot. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So I want to actually that, that actually I want to pause and ask you to do a little bit of an uh, an exercise. So the exercise is to, um, yeah, actually turn to somebody next to you, turn to whoever's next to you. Um, if, there, if there's nobody next to you, then um, then maybe find someone next to who's nearby. And if you, if there's only if there's not like, you could have three people. <laughs> yeah, and, and like, if you don't know each other, introduce yourself. So maybe Mark, you can uh, sit next to um, Lisa. Uh, I think we have. I think we have like. Okay, so I want you to basically, uh, after you've introduced yourself, if you don't know each other, um, to ask. Have one of you ask the other, and then you'll just switch. So maybe just first thing, just decide who's going to ask the question first and who's going to answer. And maybe do that now, so I can just start. <laughs> just so you find out who's, who's asking who's answering. Okay. And I'll give you the question. <laughs> so the, the exercise is to basically open yourself up to the question, and then when you hear the question, just answer, you know, whatever comes to mind. And you can, you know, a little bit, I'll give you a minute or two to, to come up with an answer. And you, you know, you can come up with an answer really quickly. You can come up with an answer. It could take you the whole minute or two to get, come up with the answer. Um, whatever is fine, right? But I want you to notice how it is to be asked this question and like where the question, where the answer to the question comes from. While you're asking, while, while you're answering the question, and then we'll switch. Okay. Um, so the question is basically the starting question that I had, which is, um, what does your practice ask of you? Whatever, however you define your practice, whether it's a practice of, like I said, a practice of worship, a practice of silence, whatever your practice is, what does your practice ask of you? Okay. And then I'll ring a bell, and then we'll just switch and do it again. We'll just switch uh, and ask the question again. Okay? So please ask the question.
dropped into consciousness and then go ahead and switch Come to some uh, closure in your thoughts, and uh, and then come back into the come back into the room. And go back to your seats if you move to your seats. Thank your partner for the uh, the question exchange. So, did. Uh, the question that I want to start actually start with is what was that like for just the without the content not even paying attention to the content yet just the being asked the question or asking the question what came up especially I guess in terms of being asked the question having somebody ask you the question Eric I remember you've got to say something that might 
the sense you want to have it make sense to someone else. But for me, it's this fuzzy thing has to kind of coalesce a little more. And I have to take some stab at sketching that, whatever that is, really fast. And so that's a very different process than thinking yeah. to myself when you first ask the question. I mean, there's similarities between what came up when I've just been thinking myself and then when I have to say something to somebody. Uh -huh. But just needing to verbalize <laughs> kind of <laughs> changes things. It's nice to articulate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. what, sorry? It's nice to articulate. Nice to articulate, yes. To have to put into words. Yeah. Okay. What was challenging? Um, you asked the question before she asked. Right? So I've heard the question before asked. So my mind went to the answer the minute you asked it. So but I got to ask first, so I had to shut my mind down to listen to her answer. Uh -huh. That was a challenge. Yeah. So like, okay. So, yeah. Thank you. Because the response that came into my head when you asked the question was not anything that I really was expecting to be. So when you started this this Dharma Dharma talk and it was about, you know, what's your practice? Oh, interesting! Yeah. So something else was revealed by yeah. The power I never of thought asking. the word courage would be mm. popped in my head. Oh, mm. nice. Thank you. Yeah. So that. Yeah. I I enjoyed the intimacy of it. Ah. Yeah. yeah. It was in that moment we were being with each other. We were talking about how difficult that is, mm. but yet we were doing it. <laughs> so that was cool. Yeah, so stepping out of a comfort zone, maybe, or not a comfort zone, but a, a usual, a typical, you know, you don't really expect to ask, be asked something so personal, right, in a normal day. <laughs> Bruce. I think for me, the, the theme was this balancing of opposites. So when I was answering the question, things came up like patience and discipline at the same time, mm -hmm. or not knowing, but accepting this, this deep level of knowingness. Um, but just on a personal level, I felt that th this this pull between, this is really cool because we get to dig into this real stuff and holy crap, I have to share it with someone else who might not <laughs> like it or think it's uh, terrible or faulty and stuff. So it's like vulnerable. Yeah. Um, it was intimate, but also there's there's vulnerability that goes with that. At the same, in the same stew with this is cool because it's the, it taps into that seeking. Mm -hmm. So it's cool and scary. Cool and scary. <laughs> Thank you. How about the actual content? Did anything come out of your mouth that surprised you? I heard a little bit. Did you say? Did yeah? Like yeah? Did, did anything come out of you that surprised you, yeah. Ernest? Uh, yes. Uh, thinking. Yeah, yeah, thinking is usually like a four-letter word. And <laughs> Not really, but, but sometimes it can seem that way. But yeah, to be able to 
think of things differently or to consider for consideration. Anyone else have a? Yeah, can, I, can I answer your first question? Sorry, yes. I'm very yes. slow today. So. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, but Bruce asked me, I think something like, what does your practice ask of you? Which is, you know, I was thinking of it about a different way. And so that was more like, whoa. And it, to me, it was very evocative. It was like, you know, I mean, that was a feeling that came out with it, which is really wow. kind of cool. Uh-huh. You know, like, whoa, this is. There's a lot there. That feeling of like, wow, there's something very. Not, not, like, not like I had something, but it was more like this that question. It was elicitive, evocative, and that, yeah. you know, in terms of a process. You know, it was like, whoa, yeah. It, so it was pretty, it was very cool. Thank you. Do you think uh, if we actually had everyone write down what the answer to the question is? Did anybody have the, the feeling when they were asked the question of like, um, what does practice ask me? Did anybody feel like, well, like, in what situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that came up. It's like, as opposed to a general, like, what does practice generally ask of me? Mm-hmm. What would practice ask of me if I were in a car accident, or saw a car accident, or stubbed my toe, or? I was thinking more just outside, like in my regular life. When a coworker says something to me, or in my yeah, running in my yoga, and my you know, what does practice ask of me in this situation? And I think it's situational. It's a situational. Yeah, thing. yeah. So that's that's the reason why I, after Bruce's comment, I wanted to do this exercise. It was exactly because of that. It was what Bruce had said was, he was pointing to the situational aspect or the conditional aspect of you know what actually what what goes beyond the conditionality I think Bruce was kind of getting into that which was being open to what happens whatever it is whatever situation it is to be open so there's but for me there's a bit of paradox because you know the talking about myself and sort of Indulging of the of the ego is ah. you know that you know the just talking about our, ourselves and whatnot. Um, it, it it's it's paradox. How zen. Wouldn't a more appropriate question for an aspiring bodhisattva be, what does your practice ask of me? What does your practice ask of me? Like, how can I help? Right? I mean, it's like, it's your practice, right? So ultimately, the, the onus and the responsibility for taking care of your practice is, is on, on the individual practitioner. Mm-hmm. And yet, ah, right? uh-huh. like, we're all connected, right? We're, we're you know, ostensibly supporting each other, right? We have this idea that we're, we're doing this practice as a together sort of practice, mm-hmm. right? So maybe uh, some, some, maybe not. Maybe yeah. some people do. Some people don't. I don't know. But I just, I thought that would be interesting. What does your practice ask of me? That's kind of like, how can I help? Yeah. Yeah. And the opposite, probably. Yeah. yeah. My practice ask of you. Right. Yeah. What does my practice ask of you? <laughs> well, <laughs> let me enumerate the things. <laughs> 
have we practiced again? How can we practice again? So I wanted, I don't have, uh, we don't have very much time left, but I wanted to introduce um, a figure in our lineage. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, this is, uh, do you know who this is? It's, it's, it's Bodhidharma. This is, this is a Bodhidharma doll. <laughs> Dharma, right? Because there's no consonants, or not together at least. So, Dharma, Dharuma, yeah, Bodhidharma. <laughs> um, the reason I'm bringing Bodhidharma into this discussion is because Bodhidharma wrote a piece. Well, purportedly, we don't know if Bodhidharma actually exist existed. I mean, there, I think there is definitely. A number of people, scholars, who think that there are many bodhidharmas, and so there's not just one bodhidharma. But there are many bodhidharmas. They, you know, we actually have, I have more than just <laughs> <laughs> So you can juggle them. And uh, they're very familiar features in Japan, you see, to bodhidharmas, and oftentimes you'll get them. When you get them, they don't have eyeballs, and you have to paint the eyeballs in. And you make a wish, and you paint first one of them, and then you make your wish. Put it inside the Bodhidharma, and then you, when the wish comes true, you paint the other one. Lots of, lots of practices around Bodhidharma. But he wrote a piece called The Outline of Practice. And in it, I've been thinking about it a lot, because, in part because there's a cer- in the ceremonial season, the life of ceremony in a Soto Zen, in Soto Zen history, there's a time of the year, which is actually in March, where the Bodhidharmas coming from the West is celebrated ceremonially. And I was at Tassajara when that time that that happens, I think it's like the 8th and the 9th, or 9th and 10th of the month of March, give or take a couple days, because it's basically a <coughs> lunar calendar. But there's always there's a ceremony that happens where there's sometimes there's a, a an enactment of Bodhidharma, you know, coming to Emperor Wu and Emperor Wu saying, you know, I've done all these wonderful things, like I've made all these temples, I've supported all these monastics, you know, what you know, what can I hope to gain from this? What merit is there in all of what I've done? And Bodhidharma says famously, no merit. No merit. But anyway, in his outline of practice, Bodhidharma talks about two, he says, many roads lead to the path, but basically there are only two. <laughs> the path of, to enter the road, to enter the road of practice uh, by, sorry, to enter the road of the path by reason or principle, and the other one is by practice. And so I'm going to read a couple of these and see if any of them resonate in terms of what you came up with for yourself about, you know, what does practice ask of me? Uh, some of them are hard. I mean, they wouldn't, yeah, how can it not be? <laughs> so in terms of practicing, entering by reason, to enter by reason means to realize the essence through instruction and to believe that all living things share the same true nature, which isn't apparent because it's shrouded by sensation and delusion. Those who turn from delusion back to reality, uh, 
who meditate on walls, meditating on walls, right, is what we do here, the absence of self and other, the oneness of mortal and sage, and who remain unmoved even by scriptures, are in complete and unspoken agreement with reason. Without moving, without effort, they enter, we say, by reason, or by principle. So transcending distinctions between holy and profane, even. This is sometimes called to enter practice through emptiness, or to enter practice through interbeing, which is just the flip side. It's a flip side of emptiness, or lack of inherent existence. Right, so that's one way that Bodhidharma lists uh, as a road that goes to the path. And then the second, the second way to enter by practice, and there are four things that enable this actualization. To enter by practice refers to four all-inclusive practices. The first one, to enter practice by suffering injustice. That's a hard one, right? When those who search for the path encounter adversity, they should think to themselves, in countless ages gone by, I've turned from the essential to the trivial and wandered through all manner of existence. Often angry without cause and guilty of numberless transgressions, now, though I do no wrong, I am punished by my past. Neither gods nor humans can foresee when an evil deed will bear its fruit. I accept it with an open heart and without complaint of injustice. The sutras say, when you meet with, adversi when you meet with adversity, do not be upset because it makes sense. <laughs> with such a, an understanding, you're in harmony with reason, and su by suffering injustice, you can enter the path. So that's the first way. The second way is by adapting to conditions. So conditions, you know, I'll know the eight worldly winds. Have you heard of the eight worldly winds? These things that basically blow us around. So uh, all the suffering and joy we experience depends on conditions. If we should be blessed by some great reward, such as fame or fortune, it's the fruit of a seed planted by us in the past. When the conditions change, it ends. Why delight in its existence? But while success and failure depend on conditions, the mind neither waxes nor wanes. Those who remain unmoved by the winds right, of joy or pain, fame or loss, profit or, uh, profit or loss, uh, silently follow the path. And then the third is by entering the path of practice by seeking nothing, which is again another paradoxical one, because normally when we come to practice, it's because we are seeking. We're seeking wholeness. We're seeking peace. We're seeking understanding. We're seeking connection to ourselves, to our uh, inmost request. So there is this seeking. But Bodhidharma says, you can enter the practice by seeking nothing. He says, people of this world are deluded. They are always longing for something. Always, in a word, seeking. But the wise wake up. They choose reason over custom. They fix their minds on the sublime and let their bodies change with the seasons. All phenomena are empty. 
Calamity forever alternates with prosperity. To dwell in the three realms is to dwell in a burning house. To have a body is to suffer. Does anyone with a body know peace? Those who understand this detach themselves from all that exists and stop, and stop imagining or seeking anything. The sutras say, to seek is to suffer. To seek nothing is bliss. When you seek nothing, you're on the path. And the fourth is by practicing the Dharma. The sutras say, the Dharma includes no being because it's free from the impurity of being. And the Dharma includes no self because it's free from the impurity of self. Those wise enough to believe and understand these truths are bound to practice according to the Dharma. And since that which is real includes nothing worth begrudging, they give their body, life, and property in charity without regret, without the vanity of giver, gift, or recipient, and without bias or attachment. As with charity, they also practice other virtues. Thus, but while practicing the six virtues to eliminate delusion, they practice nothing at all. That is what's meant by practicing the Dharma. So these are, did anyone have any of those in there? What does practice ask of me? Yeah, a little bit, right? So the first one is basically the practice of acceptance. How can I accept what, what is without railing against it, right? It sounds kind of harsh, this idea of like basically accepting uh, injustice and taking it as, well, this is my karma, or this is the karma from the past. To accept it, to not dwell on it. Uh, Kathy, what did you say earlier about the... Forget about yourself. Forget about yourself. Yeah, there's a way in which it's kind of like, forget about yourself in that. And then the second one, I heard somebody bring up the practice of equanimity. Right. The second one is to practice, accord, to practice according to conditions. Things buffeting us around. It's like, oh, things look really good right now. Oh, now they look terrible. Now they look good. Now they look terrible. Bodhidharma's mind like a wall is like, you know, you're sitting there at the wall, sitting in Zazen, and all kinds of, all manner of existence, is how he puts it, all manner of existence comes up. How to remain unmoved, even when you're feeling moved. Right? But what is it to return to stillness, to not push anything away, to not pull anything towards? Right? That's the mind like a wall, practicing patiently with equanimity. And then the next one was non-seeking. When a uh, this non-seeking is hard because oftentimes even, he says, even to seek, you know, our, our egocentric minds are kind of inherently greedy, right? They're just always acquisitive. How can I get something better than what I have? How can I, even if you're looking for things that are, you know, higher, noble qualities, maybe even especially like noble qualities to seek those, can, you can get in your own way. So what is it to not seek? One way you can think of not seeking is abiding, to abide, like the dude. <laughs> really, I mean, you think about it, the dude abides is non-seeking. 
He's a non-seeker. Sorry. From the movie The Big Lebowski. So abiding to just abide, to abide, to be, uh, to be with without the movement of trying to find something else. Right? The grass always being greener on the other side. And so Bodhidharma's words, to seek is bitterness. Right? To seek is suffering. To abide is joy. Non-seeking. And then the last, practicing the Dharma, is I think of as practicing um, maybe the ref- taking refuge in uh, teaching, in the teaching, taking refuge in vow. Right? Did anybody have any of these? Like sp- anything specific come up that you're like when you heard them? It's like yeah, that's kind of that's exactly what I mean by what came out when I was asked this question, what does my practice ask of me? Some nodding. I don't think mine went that far. (laughs) (laughs) As far as any of those, but kind of pointed toward Uh several of them. Yeah. And I think it changes. Absolutely. Since you enter the path and Right. Yeah, that's a, actually, I think that that's a really good point to, I would like to end on that point. This point of it changes. So, because it changes, the, the answer to the question changes based on all kinds of things, everything, right? You can say, you can put it into categories. Like, the answer to the question changes because of circumstances, changes because of conditions, changes because of, you know, what side of the bed you woke up on. Right. So, how do we keep alive the question? How does what does practice ask of me? What does my practice? If you want to get you know possessive about it, what does my practice or personal uh, specific? What does my practice ask of me in this uh, situation? In this conversation? in this interaction, in this uh, job that I've taken up, to continue to ask that, to reflect on that, you know, to think about, maybe a little bit, getting to Ernest's thinking, to consider this question and to let it kind of rattle around, right? Don't be too quick to find the answer and be like, oh, I got the answer. I'm done with that. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But to to consider in uh, spacious awareness as opposed to, you know, coming up with a question, uh, the answer to the question very quickly so that it's, you know, done, I've answered it. What is, what is it? What is it to practice with adversity? in this form. So, yeah, I encourage you, if anything, from this talk to come away with is the question, just the question itself. 
and what occurs when when it when you ask it or when somebody asks you. Yes, Mary. This is kind of resonating with what you were saying. Listening to the Bodhidharma piece that you just made it so aware that so much of this is in coit, you know, that it, it's in you and not mm. structured or formed or articulated. But in hearing it articulated, it helps to take something and move it towards an awareness and a thought process that you can now reflect on. But because I, you know, those were, would not be the words I used. Yeah. I didn't yet have it. It was in cult. It was coming out. Right. Yeah. It's, that was really quite interesting. It's like that, you know, the the uh, the thing touching the electric grid as we as we move around. Yeah. yeah. I thought you were saying, yeah. <laughs> 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 One finger's out, no, we're staying alive. You know, the Bodhi, the, 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 getting, so I did say I was going to talk about the Spring Fair, which I'll mention just a bit. <laughs> the Spring Fair, we bathe the baby Buddha, right? We, like, have a little statue of the baby Buddha, and the baby Buddha is doing this. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, driving around Austin, if you look at the Capitol, you see the figure on top, and you can squint. I've actually told people, Dharma teachers that have come through, like us driving around, showing them off. It's like, look, and we have the Buddha up there on the. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. Keep Austin said. The um, so this Bodhidharma. I did say I had more Bodhidharmas, and actually, I um, it's Kapok filled. So it's like a. Not a bean, not bean bag, but it's like a bean bag, but it's filled with kapok, which is what not kapok, um, buckwheat hulls. Um, so they're very easy to stack. But at the spring fair, we're going to bathe the baby Buddha, and we're also going to have some uh, bodhidharmas that are going to make an appearance and hopefully find new homes at the spring fair. Bodhi Dharma launchers? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can head that committee. The Bodhi Dharma launcher committee. Yes. I think one of the ideas really for the T-shirt should be keep Austin Zen. I think that's a good one. We ought to put that on the on the list. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. 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 Thank you, Elizabeth. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.